Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to episode 3 of Utopian Horizons, a podcast that covers a different utopia, dystopia, utopian thinker or movement in each episode. A couple of things I want to talk about before getting onto the subject of today's episode. First of all, sorry about the length of time between the last episode and this one. Uh, It's partly because I was away for a while, but it's mainly just about timings in terms of arranging interviews and things Um, so I'm going to try and avoid having a gap that long in the future so hopefully that won't happen again. I also wanted to talk a little bit about the stuff that's coming up just to say first episodes first couple of episodes I've done have been kind of general in a way I just want to say that I do want to get on to covering specific utopias and dystopias from like films and books and so on I am working on some stuff uh, in that regard um, I, I just want to I want to be able to do stuff that people have a reference point for um, partly just because it's interesting to see how utopias and dystopias are framed in pop culture and partly because I just think it'll be make it more interesting for people to listen to stuff that they uh, they know about to some degree. Today's subject, which we're going to get onto, is interesting, but uh, again, it might be a little bit obscure and something that people don't know about. So I just wanted to assure, reassure anyone who's listening who wants to hear about films and books that they know and they've heard of and they're familiar with, that I am working on stuff in that regard. So that is coming. So on to today's episode. This episode is about Louise Michel, a French anarchist feminist Uh, very much a utopian thinker and someone who took part in a very significant utopian event in the formation of the Paris Commune. Coming on to talk about Louise Michel is Mary Talbot. She's a former academic, now comic book writer. She's written a comic book or graphic novel, whatever you want to call it, I don't know, on Louise Michel's life. She's come on to talk about Louise Michel, her utopianism, things she's involved with and her life and so on. So on to my conversation with Mary. Joining me now is Mary Talbot, former academic and comic book writer who wrote Red Virgin and the Vision of the Utopia about Louise Michel, who we'll be talking about today, um, who is a French anarchist, feminist, educator and member of the Paris Commune. Um, thanks very much for, for joining me, Mary. Hi. Um, can, to start off, could you, could you give us a bit of background on Louise Michel and where she, where she came from? Louise Michel, she um, she was born in 1830 in the northeast of France in a place called Vaucourt. Her parentage is somewhat uncertain. I mean, her mother was a servant in a, an old chateau. Her father was probably the um, chateau owner's son, but uh, but she was brought up as though she was um, a, a member of family. In fact, she was. Um, born on the wrong side of the blanket, as they used to say, um, <laughs> and, to the Dimahi family. And uh, I believe she's she's not that well-known in, in the English-speaking world. I certainly hadn't heard of her before I came across your book, so... Well, she's known in, yeah, she's known in anarchist fields and um, among socialists, you know, as, as a person who was very much part of the um, 19th century movement to bring about social change. But certainly most people that haven't heard of her and in France, in fact, people may have heard of her because there are schools named after her. There's a, a metro stop in Paris. There's a Square Saint um, Louise Michel at the foot of Sacre Coeur steps, and so on. But they don't. Not many people know anything about her, even in France. Okay. How did you find out about her, and what interested you in her enough to want to write a, a book about her? Well, it it was sort of one of these 
fortuitous things in that my husband Brian was sent a book about the 19th century international anarchist movement, a book called The World That Never Was by Alex Butterworth, and which he read eventually. It was out of the blue. It was a, a proof copy. Apparently the, uh, the author was a fan of Brian's work. Okay. And one of the characters in it was Louise Michel. I mean, um, Brian said, when you finish the thing you're working on now, which is a book about the suffragette movement, he said, you really should check out this Louise Michel person. She was fantastic. She was visionary, motivating, a little bit mad. <laughs> totally extraordinary as a, as a person, especially in the 19th century. Um, for, for people who don't know, Brian's your husband, but also he's the, he's the artist uh, who does the... That's right, the, yes. You, you do the writing. Before I get on to, to talking about her, her life, um, is there? Did you take any like poetic license in there with with her life, like with, with the book? I mean, how how true is it to to what happened? As much as possible, it's sticking very closely to what I could find out about her life and the various major periods of history that she was involved in and influencing. I've had to, in order to turn it into a, a gripping story, which is meant to be. I mean, it's no use trying to um, produce something which isn't going to grip and intrigue a reader. So I needed to turn it into a a narrative which had got drive to it and so on and interest, rather than just presenting textbook facts. So I I, I introduced elements which were fictional in order to do that better. So in particular, the framing sequence of two women meeting one another in Paris as the funeral cortege is arriving or as well as leaving the, the station where it had arrived the previous night, uh, I have an invented conversation between two women in order to um, in order to help the narrative across. You know, it's, it's a plausible way of um, bringing out Louise Michelle's story bit by bit. How did she become politicised, and what was her sort of early involvement in politics? She was involved from quite early on. She was working in Paris as a teacher and became very interested in the revolutionary movements during the the Second Empire in, from the 1850s onwards. So by the time of the, the late 1860s, 1870, uh, she was very much in the thick of it. She wasn't a well-known figure then, but she was... She was one of the people who was doing attending demonstrations and writing political pamphlets and so on. So I mean, she was she was not well known before then. She became well known after the Paris Commune when she was um, deported to New Caledonia. And that's obviously Paris Commune is obviously a very very important utopian event in in and of itself, and a very Indeed, important yes. event in her life. So um, for people who who don't know anything about it, could you um, explain what the Paris Commune is and give a bit of context as to how that came about? Well, Paris had been under siege at the end of the Franco-Prussian War in, in 1870. It was, they were surrounded by the Germans. Paris was surrounded by the Germans. Louise Michel was in Paris, very much dealing with um, trying to make sure that the poor women and children in particular weren't allowed to starve to death in the siege conditions, which were very grim, especially as winter kicked in. There was very little to go around for the people who couldn't afford to buy it. So there was a lot of social unrest in Paris, had been for decades, in fact. And uh, when Paris capitulated and gave in to the, to the Germans in January of 1871, the uh, working people, working class people in Paris were up in arms about it. They were deeply unhappy about the conditions of the armistice, which were punitive. So there was a very difficult position which the 
people in charge were in, in that they had the enemy outside the gates that they just capitulated to, and the enemy inside the gate in the t- in the form of their own working class, mm. like people largely living in Matra and Belleville, La Villette, the poor areas to the north and the northeast of uh, of Paris, and Louise was living among them. And at a particular point, it was actually the eighteenth of March, eighteen seventy one. The general who was governing the army, ruling the army, he decided that he needed to disarm the people who were quite well equipped. I mean, they'd, they'd, they'd increased the National Guard by a factor of, I don't can't remember how many, but it was they were armed, quite heavily armed, and they commissioned to have uh, cannon, new cannon created, which hadn't been used. Right. When they heard about the, uh, the armistice, their response was to drag the cannon, some 170-odd of them, up the hill to the up the beauty of Montmartre and turn them on the city. Right. <laughs> so then on the 18th of March, as I say, uh, the, the general decided that they wanted to get them back and sent some 200 or more, 250 troops up the hill to get them back before dawn. Unfortunately, they'd forgotten to take the horses right. <laughs> some, somehow. And so we had what became a standoff, very, very legendary almost in status, standoff between the people, including very many, many of the women, and the, uh, the National Army, with the National Guard joining in on the side of the people, the, the Parisian National Guard. And, you know, extraordinary, really. Women literally physically draping themselves over the cannon, preventing the troops from taking them away. You have to imagine that the army was completely, pretty well demoralised. They hadn't been paid, certainly. It's scarcely been fed. Uh, They'd been routed by the Germans. You know, they they were in a very poor state in terms of morale. And they capitulated to the people. There was a standoff, a classic standoff, where um, the general told his captains to get his, his troops to fire on the people and the people were telling the troops to put down their arms. And this was, a, as I say, a classic standoff. And eventually the, the captain in charge of the troops who were supposed to be firing on the people told them to stand down, at which point there was a revolution. Throughout the course of the day, they took over Paris and the general removed his troops out strategically out to Versailles. Versailles, sorry. And by the end of the day, the National Guard and the common people had taken over the city. As I say, they, they were in the, they were occupying the Hotel de Ville. It was obviously a, it was a hugely important event, significant for democracy and leftist thought. It's amazing that it, it happens that poor and disenfranchised people rose up into the power for the army. Can you tell us like what, what the once the commune took over Paris, what did they do? Because it wasn't just about taking Paris; it was about changing it, right? That's right. Well, of course, the key thing about the Paris Commune is it was the first people's government, if you will. It was the first um, government by ordinary people, yeah. and what they wanted was to. They didn't really know. I don't think they were making it up in the as they went along in a very real sense. They uh, they knew that they wanted to improve working conditions. They wanted to in- include education. People like Louise Michel in particular wanted to improve conditions for women mm-hmm. and, and and increase the sort of employment prospects as well as education prospects for women. But they were having passionate meetings, deciding you know, try deciding, thinking about 
different ways of, of um, improving li- the lives of ordinary people. They were discussing things like free childcare, free education, workers' cooperatives. They were exploring things which um, even now are quite controversial. Sure, yeah. <laughs> I mean, 150 years later. Sure. Um, Some other examples you've, you've got in the book is requisitioning abandoned houses, giving them to the poor, cancelling yes. rent arrears. Yes. So, I mean, this was an amazing yes. time and there was a lot of amazing things happening. What was uh, Louise Michelle's role in uh, the Paris Commune? What was she, what was she doing? She was a, a nurse, basically, a main job, an ambulance person. Um, she, she had, if you like, bandages in one hand and a rifle in the other. But she um, insists by her own account that she would treat both sides. You know, if she came across uh, the enemy, who were by that point the um, the French army, this was civil war, of course, she she claims that she would bandage them just as she would the the Parisian people. Uh, But, yeah, she was, first and foremost, she she was um, part of an ambulance crew. She was also teaching. She was running a free school. That was another one of the things that they set up in Montmartre. She was also um, part of every committee you could imagine, the Women's Vigilance Committee, which was going around making sure people weren't hoarding food and so on. Right. She had fingers in pies all over the place. She was constantly writing petitions to the to the mayor in, in Montmartre and probably elsewhere, making demands about what what sort of improvements they want. She wanted. She had a lot to say about education, but she she was a teacher, so she you know, she had a lot of views on improving education, both for boys and for girls. Yes, she was doing all kinds of things. She, she claims that she never slept, which is unlikely. Yeah. <laughs> in the book, you, you get the sense that she's um, completely fearless when it comes to being in, in the fray. Almost get the sense that she's kind of revels in the chaos and conflict. Is that fair? By her own account, she did. I mean, she says she loved the sound of, of gunfire. She loved, loved the sound of machine gunfire. She loved the smell of burning. <laughs> she loved the smell of napalm in the morning sort of yeah. situation. Um which is probably a bit of a performance, a bit of a posture on her part. Yeah. But she, well, yes, she did have a rather strange aesthetic, it has to be said. And it comes through in her poetry as well as in her memoir writing, almost futurist sometimes. Okay. But she, she, she seems to have been, by other people's account as well, she seems to have no sense of fear in the battleground, running in front of bullets, you know, even for the relatively trivial reason of, you know, rescuing a cat or something like that. You know, she, right. would, uh, she, she would be out there in, in apparently with no sense of fear for her own life. And it's extraordinary that she, she was only, um, she had minor grazes, graze on her wrist from a, a ricocheted bullet or something and a sprained ankle at one point. You mentioned obviously she's a nurse but you know, had a rifle in, in her hand as well. Was it common during the, the commune for women to be involved in, in fighting or was that? It was, yes. I mean there are legends which which is hard to, um, it's hard to get to the depths of them really. There's, there's a legendary women's battalion which is almost certainly not true right. but there were women fighting in alongside men on the barricades a lot of them wearing men's uniforms as well, which was considered very shocking afterwards when they were people were on trial. So obviously, um, as well as uh, having a very strong political view, she was an ardent feminist. So were women's rights relatively well respected in the commune? Did this open up a space for 
new ideas about w- women's role in society? I think it was very patchy, actually. I mean, the, the, the women were gaining a sort of social space for discussion amongst themselves. I think it was more that rather than, than being respected yeah, okay. more broadly. Yeah, I mean, you, you have someone in the in the book, I think, giving a speech about an anti-marriage sort of speech and, and things like that. Oh, yes. I mean, they're do, doing away with uh, the institution of marriage because it's a form of slavery for women. Uh, it was one of the things they were talking about, talking about along, with, along with doing away with all priests and all religious people, doing away with all bosses and so on. They were, they were trying to think of as many ways as pos- possible of upturning the status quo and certainly doing away with marriage was, was wrong. Do, you, do we know to what extent Louise Michelle's ideas uh, on politics and feminism and so on had solidified um, before the commune or was, was the commune a place where she was kind of forming and being influenced by new ideas that she would carry on in, in the future? I think people would say that she was a Blonkeist, although my recollection is rusty as to what exactly Blonky uh, involved with. He was a revolutionary thinker and activist, and she certainly called, would have called herself a Blonkeist. When she was um, deported, when she was in the, on the uh, voyage from France to New Caledonia, which was a four-month voyage, I think, mm-hmm. she was in company with an anarchist, whose name was Natalie Lamel. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the end of her journey, she was converted to anarchism. And um, in terms of her, her feminism, what was what kind of things was she advocating and what kind of organising was she do, doing as a way of liberating women? Um, well, it, it wasn't just a matter of liberating women. She was liberating working people of whom women were, yeah, with whom she included women, of course. She was very concerned to broaden what were considered to be acceptable modes of employment for women. There was there were very little options open to women in the 19th century, especially in France, it has to be said. Prostitution was something which she was very sympathetic towards because she realised that very few women had any, had any other options. It was either taking in the washing or <laughs> taking in men. And she, was very, and she was fortunate in that her parents had sent her to be educated. She, she was trained as a teacher, but that was very unusual. I mean, she was very fortunate in, in that she, she had a, a, an independent means of, of, uh, of employment. But uh, she was very concerned that such opportunities should be broadened up to other women. And uh, she felt education was absolutely crucial in bringing that about. But, I mean, she, she was also f- very much concerned with workers' rights and she should be leading leading bread riots and so on later on in her life. You know, she was she was involved with anything radical, basically. Yeah. So you mentioned um, New Caledonia. So obviously when the commune came to a rather brutal end with tens of thousands of, of people being killed, mm-hmm. um, she was imprisoned for a period of, I think, was about two years, is that correct? Yes. And then yes. she's deported to New Caledonia off the coast of, of Australia, where she spent seven years. I think this period of her life in, in the book is um, quite important in terms of what it tells us about her politics and her lessons for us, and particularly when it comes to her involvement with the, the native population there. So could you tell us about her involvement with the native population in New Caledonia? Yes, she was very unusual as a French deportee in that she took a great interest in the local people, local tribes people. Most of her fellow deportees had a very colonial sort of view and just saw them as savages. In fact, 
commonly called cannibals. Mm. It's a standard way of talking about non-white native peoples throughout the world. Louise was different. She was fascinated by them. She wanted to get to know them. In fact, she immediately did, befriended a young man whose name was Dalmi and had long who spoke English and had long conversations with him. She also, with his help and and help of others, she got to know the local people and started to learn the language. And she um, made a point of helping them to learn English. It was a, it was a two way two way exchange. She was teaching them about what white people and white well, French presumably, and she was learning from them about their customs, their beliefs, as well as their language. In fact, she wrote about it. She eventually went on to produce a book, Geste et Chanson des Canac, I think it's called, which was published later in in Paris. But she had a sort of uh, amateur anthropological interest. It probably wouldn't stand up to contemporary standards of anthropology, but she she was generally trying to find out about the people and, and wanted to help them. And when, as eventually happened, there was a Canac, the people were called the Canacs, popularly. When there was a Kanak uprising in 1878, she took their side. She she sympathised with them and she, by her account, she ceremoniously split her communard red scarf into two pieces and gave it to two warriors as they were going out to battle. She does get a little confused in one of her later accounts. She's three pieces, but <laughs> became one of her own legends, I think. She was a sympathiser, and her with the with the local people and her fellow deportees were scandalised by this. They were shocked. That's one of the things I think makes her um, quite exceptional is the fact that her radical politics were extended to everybody. Yeah, she could actually see beyond the colour of the skin. She could see beyond um, language and so on. To she could see that there was the same power struggle. Yeah, I mean, in a way, it's it's amazing that she's among all these people, incredibly like radical people who are involved in the commune, and they they can't see that they're they're struggling against the same the same people. And you you juxtapose it very nicely in the book the the racist attitudes of her comrades and the American socialist feminists who you use as like as you mentioned at the beginning as a framing of of, of the story, kind of a strange moment because. You're sympathetic with that with that woman's views at the beginning of the story, and then suddenly she comes out with this racism, and it's really a, a reminder of you know, problems with the left and not extending their principles to their full extent, which she certainly did. Yes, yes, I should probably explain that the the radical fem- American reformist feminist was Charlotte Perkins Gilman, who's extremely well known figure in her own right. Obviously, a real historical figure, not an invented one. Yeah. I'd invented the the encounter at the beginning, but yes, I, I um, when I decided I wanted to have her as the interlocutor to to have the story told to, I, I obviously went off and did a lot of research into her. She was a fascinating person, and there's a lot of. Um, what she did was very interesting, but she was unfortunately, despite her family background, she had quite a lot of racism in her. Mm. I think there's a yeah, it's a very important lesson there in the age we're in of anti-immigrant sentiment and uh, increasing nationalism that she could identify that you have, she has more in common with the, the the vast majority of people who are, who are being exploited than with the elites that they were both trying to fight against. So that's quite an important lesson, I think. I wanted to um, talk a little bit of her, about her, her personality because there's a few little stories and, and things in the book that 
give a, a little bit of flavour of what she was like. There's a, a couple of moments of her that show off her, her generosity. Like she she doesn't have any shoes when she's on that voyage and, and the guard notices and give her some shoes. Yes. And he comes back later and she's already given them away to someone else. I mean, is this, this seems to be something, I think there's another similar moment in the book. Is this something she was always doing? Yes, well, it's something that um, accounts give about her. I mean, it's um, obviously very tiresome for people who are trying to help her out and keep. She's always got no money because she always gives it away. You know, she never has any decent clothes because she's always given them away. She's a sort of rather trying saint, you know. Um, but it's it's not something that she talks about oh, okay. in this case. It's it's other accounts, like um, Henri Rochefort's account of his voyage to New Caledonia. He's on the same boat, as a matter of fact. I don't mention him in the story because I didn't want it to be taken over by him, but he's the mystery benefactor of the, of the felt shoes. Okay. So, yeah, again, as you can see that's something that's really great about her. Like, her, her politics is there in every moment of her life. Like, she's always giving stuff away to people that she sees as more needy as her, which is it's quite amazing. Actually, what she does talk about herself when I'm remembering, when she, she talks about her early life. Hmm. When she was when she was still a child, she used to pick her grandfather's pockets and <laughs> give the money away to people who she felt were needed. Oh, really? She, That's amazing. She had this had this sense of uh, distributive justice <laughs> from an early age. And she, she also seemed to have like a, an amazing unwavering commitment obviously her time in uh when she's in exile she's still supporting supporting radical politics in in supporting the revolution of, of the other people yeah. she comes back i'm right in saying she's basically constantly sort of in trouble in and out of prison always always organizing always involved in uh radical actions and always making speeches yes i mean she 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 was a celebrity by the time she returned and she played up to it really but yeah she was um, she she was tireless she seemed to be tireless by her account the only time she could actually ha- have any peace was when she was in prison so she said she didn't mind <laughs> that was the only time she could get any reading and writing done was she relatively well known at all during the time of the commune or was it really only after she came back that she became like a, a more influential figure it was um, seemingly because of victor hugo that she became famous and during her trial, uh, which Victor Hugo must have been present at because he was very impressed by it. This, this, is this, a trial, this is a trial where she demanded that they shoot her because I think the, the quote... Perhaps you have it in front yeah, of you. Yeah, I do. I do <laughs> Perhaps yeah. you could read it. Uh, out. Since it seems that every heart that beats for freedom has no right to anything but a little slug of lead, I demand my share. If you are not cowards, kill me. Yes, yes. That, it was an extraordinary, of course they didn't kill her, they deported her eventually instead. But she must have been at a a remarkably low ebb at that point. Uh, Many of her friends and and comrades will have been uh, executed by that point, if not already slaughtered during the end of the commune. Um, So yes, she was clearly grandstanding there as well, but she'd had enough. And it obviously touched Victor Hugo very deeply. They knew one another, at least they'd corresponded with one another, and they probably had met on numerous occasions. Uh, In fact, um, Louise Michel sent him poetry when she was a teenager. (laughs) She was writing him poems. Um, She worshipped him more, pretty much. I think perhaps a lot of her politics came from reading his work. But he was so impressed by her impassioned, despairing speech, brave speech, at the end of her tribunal, that he wrote a poem, very famous called, poem called Vera Major, about her. And um, it made her famous. It, it captured the imagination of a lot of people. 
uh, with this similar sort of political leanings as Victor Hugo. I mean, he, he was a massively, massively big following. And as part of that following, um, took an interest in Louise Michel, so that you know, by the time she returned, she was well known. I want to talk. I want to move on to talk a bit about her utopianism. In the book, she she seems to have a, a fascination with utopian fiction, which is a uh, something that comes up a, a few times in the book. Um, there's a scene where she's talking about fictional sci-fi devices like time travel and hibernation, discoveries of to, to get to these like new unexplored places. So is is that reflective of her, and how did that inform her politics? Well, she throws off ideas like all over the place. You know, she's just buzzing with with ideas, and she she was passionately committed to science. This is something which I haven't mentioned so far, but she believed in science as something which could actually improve the social world, include, include people's living conditions and the quality of life. So she was interested in, in that sort of um, literary utopia because of an interest in exploring that. She thought it was going to solve, science was going to solve all problems of hunger and famine. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you about that, actually. Um, yeah, in the book, she's d- dreaming about science giving everyone enough to eat. She's imagining like a chemical mixtures filled with all the nutrients that you need and there'll be no cruelty and exploitation thanks to science um yes, did, did, this was actually quoting from her memoir that, that line right okay <laughs> um so i mean this yeah. idea of science saving us i mean i think it's, it's still around um today to, to some extent but were you i mean it feels like you were depicting that as being a bit naive in some way. I don't know if I've, I've misread that, but is, is that fair? Well, I mean, it's, science has taken quite a knocking since then, hasn't yeah. it? It's, it's produced industrial warfare and, and heaven knows what since then. Um, I mean, do you think that was, that's reflective of the time, like the, the um, radical movement at the time, this valoration of science as a... I think, I think it possibly was, yes. I mean, there were people who were deeply critical, including um, Albert Robida, who's one of the characters... In the, in the book as well, he was a, um, a science fiction the the first science fiction illustrator uh, who wrote um, satirical pieces about the, about science in, in the future and how it's not going to improve conditions. <laughs> he was quite prescient actually. So I, I think a lot of people were full of this boundless optimism for you know what, what science can offer the future. Louise Michel was one of them, but there were people who were critical. I think it's again an important lesson there that science and technology obviously can help us but whether or not it helps us is generally defined by power and politics so that's uh that defines how the technology will be used so going back to the the utopian thing obviously she's utopian fiction was a, a big inspiration for for her but was that focus on on utopianism in the book also just about the power of utopian fiction from from your perspective because i got the sense that the book yeah. was meant to be also about that a sort of a love letter to utopianism as well as being about her. Yes, I wanted I wanted to use her story in order to um, reflect a little bit on on utopian thinking in the nineteenth century, both both in politics and in literature. I'm a reader of science fiction, or I have been in the past. Um, I'm interested in in nineteenth century science fiction, a lot of which is very utopian. So yes, it was a, it was a an excuse really to to start broadening it out 
to include references to H.G. Wells and Jules Verne and people going early, earlier than that, people like Edward Bellamy and others whose names I can't think of at the moment, all of whom were writing about future utopian visions, or in the case of H.G. Wells, dystopian visions. Do you feel that uh, utopianism um, and utopian fiction has an important role to play in, in politics? Well, I do, and I think... We need to stimulate critical thinking in people. Utopian fiction surely helps with that because it's about imagining alternatives. It's it's, it's pointing out implicitly that change is possible. You know, there are other ways of living, other ways of being. We don't have to accept the status quo as being inevitable and immutable. Um, I think utopian thinking is is absolutely crucial. And certainly crucial to... Uh... To Louise Michelle. Yeah, it actually fits in a little with with the kind of teaching work that I was doing before I took before I retired and started writing for graphic novels. I mean, I was employed to develop courses on various aspects of language and power, critical discourse analysis and so on, which is very much about exploring the way language influences our perception of the world. It's about looking at how we can examine language in order to try and see how it's um, how it's influencing us, you know, um, looking at how things are written and thinking how they could be written differently. Very much to do with d- developing critical thinking. Mm. Almost in the way that language can, um, the way things are phrased, can limit what we see as possible. Yes, yes, without putting too, too much deterministic strength into that yes sure yeah sure yeah. well certainly the i think louise michelle's refusal to accept accept what was possible and impossible is very inspiring i always ad- admire people like that mary thank you very much for your time if people want to buy your book it's called the red version and the vision of utopia you can buy uh, where, where's the best place to buy it from you can get it you can just google it and you'll find it certainly you can get it by my website there's, well there's a link to the to the publisher's website on the page which is the red virgin page okay what's your website it's mary.talbot.co.uk brilliant okay thanks thank you very much mary thank you so that's the end of our conversation with mary thanks for listening if you've got any feedback on the podcast or have anything you want to see me cover in a future episode then please do let me know you can email me on utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com you can get in touch on twitter at utopianhorizons and on facebook.com slash utopianhorizons if you've enjoyed this episode please do subscribe rate and review in whatever service you use to listen to this that really does help with the exposure of the podcast and get new people listening to it and that'll make it easier for me to keep doing this or just recommend it to someone that you think might like it if you've enjoyed it so again thanks for listening and hopefully it won't be as long a wait for a next episode Thanks.